0: You are listening to Giant Size, the show that believes that comics are for everyone and every comics podcast could be someone's first, just like every comic is someone's first. I'm Moises Chuyan. joining me, as always, is the Poison Ivy to my Harley Quinn, a guy I get away with calling Puddin, John Golson. How are you, John?
1: I'm doing super. Man. Superman.
0: It's been a good long while since we've recorded, uh, and I've missed you, John. I've missed you so much. Since we last recorded, we had Fantastic Four Denny's together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we, we did. I had the
1: Thing Burger. I had to. I had to get the Thing Burger in my gullet before. Uh, before the box office <laughs> made sure that there the was the menu for no you. No more menu. Yeah, no more Fantastic Four themed menu. Surprisingly, um, flavorless in a weird way, considering yeah. how much stuff is on it. It's just sort of like. It just tastes like burger uh, tastes,
0: tastes like uh, like Meat, fat, and carbs Yeah So John, um, lots and lots of things have happened Since Dallas Fan Expo this past May uh, This is our, our Fan Expo Dallas uh, special We've got a variety of creator interview excerpts uh, to include here, some of which will be available uncut and at extended length in the artist edition feed as extras. If you already subscribe to the giant size channel feed, you listeners, you already get those uh, in line in sequence with these main episodes, those longer cuts uh, take a, a few days to a couple of weeks uh, to get out there, just because uh, we do some post processing on them and, and want to make sure that they don't sound like utter garbage. Um, but uh, we will have the the extended version of uh, some some uh, some chats with Neil Adams and uh, Val Merrick, um, resulting from this episode. Uh, we've got a, a bunch of of cool people uh, that were at this show that we talked to at this show. Uh, it was uh, it was it was a big pile of show, uh, mm-hmm. and that's not, that's not a derogatory. I'm just saying it was it was a thing burger stacked size of show,
1: but much more flavorful,
0: very much more. There a lot more marbling, uh, and uh, you know I'm I'm gonna lose the food metaphor. Uh, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorite shows every year, uh, and and I I love. Every single bit of it that uh, that uh, my buddy Mark Walters touches Uh, and uh, on the media guest side of things, I got to um, I got to talk to Tom Kenny. Uh, I got to talk to Tara Strong, Charles Martinet, the voice of Mario, Uh, some some voice actor talents, uh, which was really great for me. Uh, And uh, and I I finally got to uh, to actually hang out a little bit with Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor, who I've seen show after show after show. Uh, We were we were designated uh, dark acolytes in uh in, in the church of, of Bernie Wrightson um in, in a hotel bar. A lot of things happened. A lot of feels were had, John. Yeah. How was the show for you?
1: Uh it was a it was really, really good. I got I hosted my first uh sketch duel at that show, uh Kenneth Roquefort and uh, Ed McGuinness. Uh that was that was really cool. I haven't done one of those solo. I've been up on stage with you before, but that was the first time I've gotten to do one. Um by myself which you know was a nice uh a nice thing to be able to prove to yourself that that hey i can i can do this yeah and and i Um, wasn't
0: a liar telling you that you very well could do it in fact various canadians from the fan expo side of things were like this guy's really good eh
1: oh cool that's that's nice to hear they they said nice things to me too you know the different volunteers and things like that uh because it was their first time like hey who's this guy um but that's the wonderful thing about having a, a head full of uh, <laughs> a working knowledge of different people's uh, careers is that you get you can come up with stuff on the fly. You know, I'm always surprised when I see you in the in the great big panels like you sitting there with Tom Kinney. And it's it, it almost becomes a case, you know, he plays to the crowd really, really well. But there's something about it as well that feels like I'm having I, I'm, you know, have a little window seat to a conversation between two people. It doesn't necessarily feel like uh Everything is is pitched out towards the crowd as much as it is just it. I don't know how to describe it because you're in a room with hundreds of people, but there's something more conversational yeah. about it. And, and I've seen you do that with Kenny. I've seen you do that with uh, with pretty much any of the huge names that you've had in the big halls. So. John I, already so like I just, you. you're, 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 I just aspire to, uh, oh, to do that. shut
0: up. I mean, you're, you're the guy who's in actual movies that get actually released and, you know, you can find zero charisma right now, probably on a streaming service, or you can buy it on disc at Amazon or, uh, your, your local record or DVD store of choice. Um, uh, speaking of Tom Kenny, the, the first thing I, I wanted to cut to actually that we, we mentioned in the outro to our Comic Palooza show was just a, a short bit of the chat uh, that I did with him that uh, that kind of centers on his his comics nerd fandom, um, and uh, and this uh, this was also excerpted on a, a recent episode of Electric Shadow uh, that I'll point you to in the show notes at esn.fm/giantsize/39 as this is Giant Size. Episode thirty nine, um, and then we'll come back and we'll we'll start uh, we we'll start we'll start jumping down the list of really uh, great comics talent names, and uh, and here's some interesting anecdotes and uh, thoughts and uh, and feelings from various people. Sound good, John? Sounds good to me. We have a wonderful array of fabulous guests at this show, but I I want to say, Tom, you might take the nerd crown as like <laughs> nerd bona fides. You're picking out Hulk art on kids' shirts as they come up to your table and going. You know who drew that? Is this person. This is why they're important. You should go find those comic books. That's what right. were your comic right. books, man?
2: That's right. That's I told yeah, because there was somebody that had a drawing of Hulk by Marie Severin, who was like mm-hmm. one of the few silver-aged female comic artists, you know? which just like, you know, that was a man's world back then. And she uh, Absolutely. I know. I'm a nerd. I'm, what, you're what, right. I've, I've got the nerd crown. What, what, uh, wait, don't talk to me about crowns.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, uh, last, last time I put on a crown, it didn't work out so well.
0: <laughs> are, there, are there projects like Adventure Time that you get the first script and you look at it and you say, you know, you never know what's going to be a hit, but you look at it and you say, there is it. something strange and interesting and daring and different about yes, this. Is absolutely. that that's something you felt just right from the workout? Yes,
2: out? SpongeBob and Adventure Time really both had that feeling, you know, and uh, Rocket, too, you know, where you look at it and you just go, wow, this, is, this really isn't like anything else that I've seen. You know, those three shows in particular are shows that I can look at and go, I can't really point to that and go, oh, that's an outgrowth of this. You know, I mean, obviously, everything after a certain point is Ren and Stimpy influenced. You know, yeah. Ren and Stimpy was such a game changer. It made cartoons funny again, right? It's like, you know, the 70s and 80s cartoons, there just wasn't a whole lot of that that classic Warner Brothers type comedy. And and uh, you know, yeah, yeah I think w- w- without Ren and Stimpy, you wouldn't have had stuff like Rocco's Modern Life and, and things like that. But, but most of those shows, you, especially Adventure Time, and w- w- in particular, was one where I knew about it because my kid had seen the short on YouTube where they go to Mars and Abraham Lincoln is there. You know that one? And that's not me as the Ice King, right? That's John uh, Cryptkeeper uh, Kassir as as the Ice King in that one. And then so I was very well aware of that short. My kid and his friends would just watch it 8,000 times and think it was so strange and wonderful. And then when they started casting for a new Ice King voice, I don't know why, but uh, I just went in and, and read for it. And I had to go in a bunch of times. You know, like like that's... <laughs> I just did my, my uh, fifth-grader's career day uh, last week at school. And, uh, yeah, and, and you fight. Yeah, I know, it's like, how am I going to... I can't follow the dental hygienist. And it's like... <laughs> You go, how? Because you don't want to make it seem like it's just fun and games, although that is a component of it. So, so you know, so, so I did start trying to tell these kids, like, you know, the part that isn't fun is that you audition a lot for stuff, and a lot of times you don't get the part. So you have to be, you know, you, you eventually got to be okay with putting it all out there and them going, you know, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we'll call you for something else, maybe. You know. And then some, sometimes you do hit, hit the ball, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, but the more you audition, the more times at the plate, uh, obviously, the more swings you take, the, the, the better your batting average is going to be. So, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's, if, if there's anything that's kind of tough about the job, it's that, like, you see those projects that you go, I really want to be on this. I will be really sad if I'm not on this. I'm going to really try to give them the best audition that they've ever seen and you know sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but with Ice King I kept getting called in again and again and again and I'm like I can't and Pendleton Ward is um such an eccentric yeah <laughs> have you guys ever seen him he is a Texas guy isn't he I, that sounds right. so I, I think he is I think he he's visits fun. Austin
0: a lot yeah I think all my he, friends are like oh, I'm having drinks with
2: Pendleton Ward I've been to Austin with Pendleton yeah he, he's he's great but but he was hard to read, and I couldn't tell he's not real um, talkative, you know. So I, I just didn't know whether he was liking what I was doing. I'm like, and then they they would go, "Thanks, you know." I've got to do ice skating. Hi, what do you like of this? And you know, I would try to go. I know he's tragic and he's sad. I'm gonna try and play the tragic sadness kind of real, you know, like a like a real serial killer, you know. I forget forget that I'm in a cartoon, you
0: know. And they'll make it cuddly um, in the toys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> and then you would leave, and then then they would go, "Thanks," and you leave, and I go, "I don't." Maybe he just keeps bringing me back in to make sure he hates it.
0: <laughs>
2: I just wanted to make sure I didn't like it. Yeah, I don't like it. So, so Ice King was a really tough one to book, you know. And um, and, and I love that character so much. It's so fun to play him. There's so many layers and you know levels of
0: tragedy that they keep revealing. And it's... Uh... I, there are some Ice King episodes that have really genuinely made me cry. 32-year-old man weeping watching a cartoon.
2: Yeah, I've cried. I've, I've, I've cried at Simon O'Marcy.
0: <laughs> And, uh, oh, yeah, God. It's,
2: uh, yeah. Why'd you have to say the name? <laughs> uh, I know. Oh. We're sensitive.
0: Us sensitive dudes. We make good boyfriends, though. Us sensitive dudes make good boyfriends. The best. We're both so. married, though. Not to each other, but married separately. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tom Kenny, uh, as, as you uh, put it so eloquently in the Comic Palooza special, uh, really is a nerd among nerds. He really, real deal, just... Pulls the stuff out of thin air. Honestly, you were the person that I would compare this talent to more than anybody. You, who had a a, a professor at Savannah College of Art and Design, uh, W. Freak Boy, as the encyclopedia of knowledge that just kind of pulled it out of nowhere. Well, Um,
1: Kenny's got one up on me because he's good with those numbers. Like, he can tell you issue numbers and dates. And that's where I really fail. Like, you can tell me, like, who. You know, I can I can pair creative teams pretty good from periods, but he can get down to the nitty gritty of like numbers of when they first started and first appearances and what year that was. And that's that's where I kind of fall apart.
0: Well, I am really thrilled that, you know, he gave me his number and said that he wanted to be on the show and that it sounded like a lot of fun. And he said, can I just do it on the phone? And I said, "Uh, uh, however, you would like. Yes, SpongeBob, whatever you say, Ice King. Uh, Sure thing, Dr. Octopus. So. Uh, lots and lots of talent, like I mentioned at the show, um, a couple of of guys who have been working for Archie for some time now, uh, who were at the show and who I'd wanted to talk to for uh, for a while, and it was it was always a matter of there's somebody that I can't get to tableside at, at shows over the years or something, but finally these guys are going to be in a sketch duel, and I was definitely going to get a chance to talk to Dan Parent, the creator of Kevin Keller, the uh, landmark. Uh, Most recent addition to the Archie canon Uh, and Fernando Ruiz, who I I feel is is uh, probably, you know, probably extends to parent as well. Um, One of the one of the most uh, unsung, uh, really major talent artists that are out there Um, because, you know, not everybody reads Archie. And that's that's where the majority of his work is. Um, these guys these guys were great and super uh, super friendly and uh, humble. And I, I guess John, um, what, what was your experience with the with these uh, these two guys playing with with some of the uh, even more popular than they were before toys in the toy box?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think an Archie artist would have been uh, a draw at a comic con even five or six years ago, except to those um, really diehard, hardcore Archie fans, you know? Um, but I think, uh, Archie is in a, such a place now and there's so many eyes on Archie and there's a hipness to Archie, uh, where, you know, they were kind of a little bit more, they had more of a superstar quality than, than they may have had five, six years ago, you know? And again, it's not necessarily based on their own talent or their art. I mean, obviously they're, they're great artists, but, uh, but Archie's in the spotlight right now. Like, people love Archie, and as such, people love Dan Parent and they love uh, Fernando Ruiz. Um, Ruiz right now is uh, working on uh, Archie versus Predator. You know, Archie's been doing these books that are really, uh, <laughs> like, kind of pushing the envelope with stuff. They've got The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which is a great horror comic for adults, uh, as is Afterlife with Archie. You know, there's the new... Um, the new series from Mark Wade, uh, which is oh, excuse a little bit younger, certainly the, the younger reboot. than the, yeah, certainly younger than the horror stuff. Um, but they're playing around with their properties, and, and one of the ones they're doing right now is Archie versus Predator, uh, written by uh, Alex de Camp de Decompy or de Campy. Do you know how to say her name? I,
0: I have heard it said de Campy more often than anything, but that is one of the various uh, pronunciation things that we should uh, we should get well, a handle it looks, on. You know, she
1: writes the Grindhouse titles for Dark Horse, yeah. And so, if it, if her name is the literal translation, like Alex of Camp, so we'll, we'll, I'll, say, I'll say Campy. Um, uh, and then Dan Parent, you know, I got a, I got to talk to him just a little bit, the importance of Kevin Keller, and how, how people sometimes, you know, we we both grew up in um, in small Texas towns. Um, can, can
0: we preface for people who maybe don't know who Kevin Keller is? Kevin Keller, the first major gay character in the Archie main cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead.
1: And I think. I think something that's important when you grow up in like um, kind of middle America, like Bible Belt stuff, is it's real easy to not have an understanding just based on ignorance. You know, it's easy for things like homophobia to grow because you simply don't understand it or don't know anything about it. And and I know firsthand just from going to school and things like that in in deep rural East Texas, that part of it is just the thought that it's a constant... uh, (laughs) that it's a constant gay club, nightlife lifestyle, that it's nonstop group sex and orgies, and that's what being gay means. And I think there has to be a fundamental shift in people's minds that it's not really uh, about that. It's, it's just, hey, who, who are you attracted to? Who do you fall in love with? And one of the really important things about Kevin Keller and the Archie series is that the Archie books, by their nature, are not sexual. Um, they're lightly romantic. I don't necessarily want to come across like I'm endorsing Archie because they don't show gay sex. I think there's a place for gay sex in comics. I think there's a place as well for... There's
0: no sex in Archie.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I think there's, I think there's a place as well for that representation and that wholesomeness and not necessarily feeling, uh, you know, what anybody would impose as sinful, um, in a situation where it's Kevin Keller and he's dealing with teenage stuff and he likes guys. And I think that's just as important as, as any other, you know, positive representation of homosexuality in media. Um, and it, and it fills a very specific, very, very, uh, dedicated niche that a lot of things don't fill. So I just wanted to clarify because I I was stumbling across my own words simply because, I did not want to sound like I was one of those people going, "Hey, this is really good because it's very safe." I'm saying this is actually not very safe. It's actually pretty daring. It's on the cutting edge and it's very modern and it's also very true because it's it's simply about romance and attraction and And I think that's great.
0: Well, who'd have thunk that that it would be cutting edge and daring to do something as controversial as focusing on the human relationship side of intimate relationships (laughs) themselves? Dude, I know.
1: know. And that's why I feel so dumb even saying it. Because it's like, I feel like I'm bending over backwards to praise a thing that we should have already gotten over. Well, it's it's because we do
0: a show that is about a medium that is so well known Rightfully so, because of the way that the output has been for a significant amount of time for spine-twisting, elastic, wasted, unrealistically proportioned, super-sexualized imagery, in particular of women, but also of impossibly beefcakey men. Mm-hmm. The, there, there is no marbling in that sirloin. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I the the whole comics industry is so. Predominantly about The sex sells thing That the intimate Quiet side of relationships Is often left completely out
1: Somebody had to take those steps And to me it's just amazing That it was Archie That took those steps And I think you see Some of the actual You know for the first time In Archie's history I think you're seeing Other publishers respond To the fact that Archie barreled on Like they didn't shut down uh, no Million Mom March stopped them in their tracks. They just barreled on, and they barreled on with popularity, and they, bar- they barreled on in a way that connected with readers. And I think it's exceedingly rare for Marvel or DC to look at what Archie's doing so- from a progressive societal standpoint and go, oh, we can actually do that. I think that's, that's really, <laughs> it's really really interesting.
0: It's an interesting dynamic all around. I I, I really love that there's some renewed attention. There's some renewed heat. There's some interest in new voices, different voices, fresh voices, and people who just plain love Archie and want to do something different and cool. Um, for a good reason and not just for for effect or something you know Afterlife with Archie um, uh, Archie versus Predator you know as, as gimmicky as they are uh, they're extremely well put together books and I honestly I mean there there are some of them that I would definitely trade an equivalent level of quality superhero title for so now we're going to hear a little bit from dan parent dan speaks first fernando ruiz as well uh the audio quality on this is less than ideal gotta say that up front this is true of a number of these uh bits that we got at the show uh but we've we've managed to get them just listenable enough uh, that we don't feel like we need to write apology letters to all of you uh and I'll jump in periodically as we uh, jump to different topics within the audio that we chose to excerpt from this stuff. We kept it pretty minimal, though, just, again, because the audio quality is not that great, and it's tough to listen to for very long. So to start off with, here is Dan Parent talking about... How he got into comics as a fan.
3: For, for me, it was the, uh, the you know the thirty-two page books. I was like five years old back in the late '60s, and, and my mother was buying me like the, the, the like the fifteen cent uh, Archie comics. So it was like the regular um, thirty-two page comics. It was like Josie and the Pussycats and Sabrina, and um, those were yeah those were what hooked me. That's what got got me going.
4: Same.
5: Same thing for me. Uh, I started with the regular Archie. Actually. To go back even a little further, I started with like the the Harvey comics, like Richie Rich and Casper the Friendly Ghost. Then graduated to Archie, and then graduated to the superhero. Probably Kurt Swan for Superman. He was, I mean, he drew Superman for like 50 years, so he, he drew a lot of the stories that I uh, read as a kid.
3: Me too. I was I was more like into the DC stuff a lot, and it was uh, Superman. I'd say Jerry Ordway was my favorite Superman artist. Really liked him. And uh, I'm trying to think what else. I liked um, you know, I grew up in the Legion of Superheroes. I loved Legion. Um, Justice League. Um, but yeah, um, and I and then Harvey Comics too was a big thing when I was when I was a kid. And and then I really was like I liked a lot of like the stuff like the fanographic stuff in the eighties and nineties, like love and Rockets is like one of my favorite comics. And Eight Ball was really one of my favorites and I love I liked a lot of stuff they put out, so kind of, you know, really a little bit of everything. I mean, I like, you know, old obscure stuff, too, like, you know, 40s and 50s, 60s things. Um, And I like all the old, like, teen comics that were all the really weird obscure teen comics from, like, there were so many of them back in the 60s. There was dozens and dozens of Archie ripoffs that I actually liked because they were just, some of them were so strange. Like, there was, you know, a bunny was the Harvey one. And um, there were some really weird Harvey comic superheroes. There was Fruit Man. Remember Fruit Man? No. He worked in a, like a fruit store, like a, like, a, like a produce thing, and he could turn it into different kinds of fruit. That doesn't sound like a... <laughs> Well, it was a winner. I just said it, it, just kind of, it just kind of, I don't know if there'll be a movie
5: made of it, but... <laughs> ben Affleck as Fruit Man? There you go.
0: Here's Fernando Ruiz talking about when he felt like he wanted to make comics drawing his job.
5: Well, you, I don't know if you ever consciously make that decision. You just draw and you hope for the best, and you hope somebody gives you money for it.
1: <laughs>
5: um, but I, you know again I, I mentioned Kurt Swan before uh, a lot of the, the artists who drew the comics that I was looking at as a kid they were, they were my big influences uh, certainly uh, Dan DiCarlo who drew Archie for like 50 years yeah. um, I don't know if anybody who's, who's drawing Archie today can say that they aren't influenced by him You know, he, he really made the mold
3: I don't know what it was. Oh, well, I do know what it was. But
5: the stuff was just so so.
3: Um, the characters were so alive that he drew them. It was the way they would stand. It was it was, very, it was very simple stuff. The way they would stand. Like the way that he put the wrinkles in the clothes. It was always very very subtle stuff. Um, but the characters always looked very realistic. And um, and he just drew the characters, especially the girls, of course, um, very sexy. He was able to draw. Teenage girls, you should have to be kind of careful when you're going into that area, as very sexy characters, but they still had a wholesome edge to them, too. And that's really, really hard to do because when a lot of people try and draw you know, sexy girls, sometimes they don't look that sexy. Sometimes they look a little over... What's the... What's the probably a word for that. I'm trying not, not to say the word whore <laughs> But Dan would always... Could, could draw them, and they would look sexy and wholesome at the same time.
5: And he was just a, a good artist all around. Yeah. I mean, any, anything that he could draw, any story, just looked 100% like a well-drawn Archie story. And I, I think also, too, just the fact that he did so much of it. I mean, he was so prolific. Um, he, he just becomes familiar after a while. You know, it, it, it's not an Archie story unless he draws it. And he, and he definitely uh, set the Archie
3: style too. I mean, he set like the modern day Archie style um, that had started. You know, kind of borrowed a
0: little bit from Bob Montana, and then he made it his own. John, Nick Bradshaw, Georges Gianti. Um, these guys were in a sketch duel against each other. They are they are both names that are associated with very top selling books in. Some rather different genre in in some cases, uh, but uh, they they both have a love of superhero comics in particular. Where where should we start talking about these these two artists supreme?
1: Oh, you know, um, yeah, they are very they they are very different. Like they kind of they kind of operate in, in different spheres with a little bit of overlap in the X Men universe. Uh, as I think, <laughs> I think most you know. Artists working at a certain level at some point get to draw the x men characters somehow some way and and you were telling me and i didn't know this that that uh that Gianti had drawn gambit and uh, and bishop series yep yeah
0: bishop the last x men and then the the gambit ninety nine and the gambit two thousand four uh series gambit the guy who just he keeps getting miniseries
1: for some reason the guy that's getting his own movie well he's a big star
0: yeah he gets he gets his own magic Mike uh top-lined movie uh but he still is kind of the pepe le pew date rapey dude from the 90s x-men cartoon
1: yeah i don't think i've ever read i would that you know i've probably picked up a first issue i was going to say i don't think i've ever read a gambit solo adventure and as an X Men character, one of the things I always found interesting about Gambit was how dismissive the entire team, with the exception of Storm, was to Gambit in general. Even Rogue, to some extent, ends up like going off with Magne- Magneto at some point. So even she's kind of dismissive of Gambit. Uh, but I just thought that was a really weird dynamic for him to be uh, part of a team because, you know, you're used to. Even if there's an outsider like a nightcrawler or the thing, they they're taking it upon themselves to be like, "What am I doing in this team? I'm not contributing enough, or I'm just a monster." Um, here, you had a case where, to me, like this, and it was it was very subtle. Like I never felt like it was something that Claremont intended, but it seemed like everyone on the team was always kind of either suspicious or dismissive of Gambit. I don't know. That kind of gets off on a, like <laughs> a Gambit tangent. Um, but it's interesting. I think, it, I, and I still think it's interesting. I think there's meat to explore there. Should should some writer actually want to pick up on that thread?
0: Well, it, uh, it it is interesting that that you go on a tangent about Gambit when we're talking about two artists whose um, whose abilities, in particular, with really kinetic scenes, with a lot of stuff going on, with a lot of action, with a lot of. Um, you know, stuff going in different directions, that sort of thing. Both of these guys are very good, uh, especially at that stuff, which is, are you, is crucial are you saying for a superhero that their,
1: their mutant power is to take something static and charge it with kinetic energy.
0: In fact, I very well might, John Golson.
1: Wow, <laughs> that's what comic book artists do.
0: In a way, in a way, the best superhero comics artists are, in fact. Uh effectively nicer doing gambits. Nicer gambits. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gambit Giante, but gentlemen.
1: Now so even though I don't know Gianti's X-Men work, and I, I know Bradshaw's X-Men work pretty well, but I uh, Gianti's stuff I know from I am and I don't think I've ever said this publicly, I am a um I'm a brown coat.
0: Uh, <coughs> wow, you that into Hitler?
1: Yeah. Uh oh I'm no, sorry, the, that's the brown shirt. Ones, brown, brown,
0: brown coat, not brown shirt. Okay. Sorry, yeah, I get th- um, I get it mixed up.
1: I am. I'm like a low. I always say like low level because I I don't think I could win a game of like Firefly Trivial Pursuit, but I really like it and I've watched that short season probably three or four times. I saw the movie opening night. It it is part of my fandom. It's not necessarily like an extended part, but it sure was cool. Um, and so I read Serenity Leaves on the Wind, which was the continuation of the series. Um, that George Gianti drew for Dark Horse. Uh, and so that's where I know him from. And then Joss Whedon fans probably know him better from his work on continuing uh, the Buffy seasons in comic book form.
0: And that is something that I, I brought up and, and talked to him about, because Joss Whedon is, I wouldn't say he's a control freak at all, but I would say that he is very careful about his properties being handled the right way, and one of the things that I, I was most interested in talking to him about was what those lines were like to dance around, what kinds of guidelines he had, how much freedom he had. Um, so we'll we'll get we'll get to, uh, hear a little bit uh, about that from Georges, and then we'll we'll come back. We'll talk about Nick Bradshaw. Sound good? Okay.
6: Is that is that a show that you were into already? No, no, I, was, I maybe had seen an episode before I'd done it and got into it, and I, it makes me look better than I should, but Joss actually uh, approached me to say, hey, I, I'm, I love comics, I love what you do, I'd love to you to start this thing. I'm doing Nobody Knew It, of course, at the time. And I was kind of like, uh, I don't know, I haven't really done likenesses or anything like that, so I was like... I'm not really good at it, though. I, I, don't, I don't think I can do it justice, Joss. And to his credit, the guy, you know, he's, he's not where he is and who he is just for no reason. But he, was, he put it to me very succinctly because he said, um, when you do it, I don't, I'm not as interested in it looking like Sarah Michelle Geller. I just want her to look like Buffy. And for some reason, that just clicked into my head. Oh, okay. So you don't... He's like, I don't want it to be a photo reference. You know, that's why we could go to other people who would do photo reference, but I want it to be a comic. And I want you to represent what Buffy would look like if she was in a comic book. And I was like, oh, oh, that I get. So from there, it it was a joy. I didn't... I was... Once the guy in charge tells you, feel free, I like what you're doing, then you're like, oh, man, I'm untouchable. You know, I can do anything, draw anything, put anything in it, and I know at the end of the day, 20th Century Fox is not going to get on me because Joss is like, no, 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 I, I like it. He's my guy. Let it go. And as a result, I, had, I never had a problem never had a, never had to change anything never had an issue I mean if there was an issue it was because me being the, the geek media fan that I am I was putting stuff in there and licenses like oh, well maybe we might get sued you know I put the uh, doctor and, and Rose in there in an issue just because I love Doctor Who and, and it, it was things I thought would get past people and when people started mentioning it they're like hey just kind of chill on that because if somebody from another company says what did you do that we've got to own that so don't don't do it as much but every now and again I would sneak something in there for sure
4: on an ongoing basis did you find yourself working uh, with with Joss with Jed uh, with, with somebody, you know, from the Mutant Enemy team in particular? Uh, everybody, yeah. That was a great thing about Joss, too, when
6: we started doing Season 8. Uh, he started it off just like the TV show. He he approached it just like he did the TV show for any Buffy fans or, or Whedon fans. Buffy he, fans, Whedon fans? A, just in general? Oh, a two. Yeah. <laughs> one or two. Um, you know, he would essentially, they would have an overview. He'd have an overview saying, here, this is what happened in the beginning. This is where the conflict is, and this is where I want it to end up. And you Usually, Joss's thing is he'd come in and write the beginning, start it off, maybe do a few episodes in the middle, and then come in and finish up in the end. And that's exactly how he approached the comic book. And the great thing about Joss, and I think the great thing about Buffy and how much love there is for the character, he essentially got most of the writers who used to write for Buffy the Vampire Slayer to come over and do the comics, some of them who had never written comics before, uh, to come in, and they were all without question, because I, I worked with most of them. They were all happy to do it. I mean, trust me, none of those guys, Hollywood guys, were doing it for the paycheck. They weren't getting paid. I mean, they were getting paid, yes, but I'm sure that paycheck did not overcompensate for whatever Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or any of the other TV shows they might have been writing. They did it for the love of the show, and that I really has a sense of integrity to Buffy, that you can still love something so many years later, and it, it wasn't just a job to them. So. And it was a case, I realized he was getting into it also. Because at first, the scripts, when they came in, they were pretty dense. They, there was a lot there. And then as we kept collaborating, I noticed that the scripts were lighter and lighter. And I was like, hey, do you just not care? Well, what's going on? He's like, no, you know what you're doing. You know, I don't have to explain it so much because obviously we got this rapport going and I don't have to go into it as much. And I was like, okay, well, damn, I'll take that as a compliment. So in terms of how I approach comics, I really do look at it more like a cinematic thing. I I really try to have the actor or the characters act, or if they're in the background, have them do stuff. You know, I I really try to be conscious of that. Uh, Years in in college, I thought I might go into acting, so I I kept that as a result, and I apply it to what I do. And when I'm reading Joss's scripts, because they're they're full scripts, and like I guess the DC version, they have the uh, dialogue and everything's already there, so it's it's really like you're getting the whole thing. And I'm I'm the one supposed to be visualizing it, but you're getting the whole thing as it's written. And from there I felt like, Oh, this is I see Buffy doing this and she's acting this way or or doing that so it was very rewarding to feel like i was directing these characters that you know people already knew and everybody knows or if you're a fan you know what that character does or how that character acts and that's what i was trying to stay faithful to
0: john let me ask you something just straight up do you think that nick bradshaw has drank the blood of art adams or something
1: i think if he if he actually had he'd be way slower (laughs) uh You know, I, I think Art Adams would be the first to admit Actually, I read an interview I remember when Monkey Man and O'Brien first came out Because as fans, the assumption always Was that Art Adams was really, really slow Just, it took him forever And in, in interviews leading into Monkey Man and O'Brien, which was his 1990s creator-owned um, Comic that he did It's like an adventure sci-fi comic he did for Dark Horse um, One of the things he said in the interview Was that he wasn't slow, he was just lazy that he could actually draw monthly if he wanted to, but he was like super duper lazy. Uh, he's he is a formidable talent. Um, Nick Bradshaw. The first time I saw him, I I did. I was like, who's this? Who's this guy that wants to look like Art Adams? The good thing about Nick Bradshaw though is he can uh, he can turn in pages on a deadline. <laughs> so uh, so you get to see that kind of Art Adams style and all the things that you that you like about Art Adams' work um, on a monthly basis, but also it's not Art Adams. Like it is Nick Bradshaw and there's some, and there's subtleties there. And it's like, I've read both of those creators extensively. Like I have a bunch of Art Adams work and I have a bunch of Nick Bradshaw work and Bradshaw's not so much a clone that if you showed me a Bradshaw picture, I wouldn't be able to go, oh, that's Bradshaw. You know, I can, I can taste test. I, it's, I can take the Pepsi challenge on on Adams and Bradshaw and and tell the difference between the two. And Bradshaw has his own certain things that he likes to draw and, and, um, a certain degree of playfulness. Art Adams is also playful, but I think there's, um, there's just something different in their work that really shows when you, when you really dig into their monthly output. Um, Bradshaw really came to life for me on Wolverine and the X-Men, uh, you know that was he the, made what, that that book a joy
0: what was the setup for that series was, was this Was this the first time we saw Wolverine in a particular light as as related to the Xavier School?
1: He was headmaster of the gene Gray School. Um, it happened after an event called Schism where Wolverine of all people felt like Cyclops was pushing the younger mutants too hard, um forcing them to be more warriors, where he really felt like childhood and, and your teenage years were not the time that you had plenty of time as an adult to be a warrior. Um, and so he he wanted to bring the school back and really focus on their education and letting kids be kids. And Bradshaw drew the hell out of those kids. I mean just just a love of those characters coming off of the page uh, you know, when when Bradshaw drew that book. You really got you really got a feel that he really enjoyed drawing these weirdos. Like a lot of them are are really strange. Uh, and, and there, but he made them so lovable. Um, yeah, it's a really, really good book written by Jason Aaron. Uh, that was really good. And then he, since then, you know, he's worked, um, on guardians of the galaxy with, uh, with Brian Michael Bendis, I think right at the time when, you know, pretty much all eyes were, were on that book (laughs) because of the movie. Um, so so
0: we're gonna get to hear a little bit from Nick Bradshaw, in particular, about his love and appreciation of the work of Art Adams, and we are also hoping to uh, to get some of his time uh, to be a, a guest on the show uh, with with the two of us in the future.
1: You know, we we come across these guys at conventions and we talk to them, and there's some of them you just have an instant rapport with. You know, I told you at the at the uh, was it the Dallas show that that I met Cully Hamner. Yeah. Yeah. And just had an instant rapport. And, and Nick Bradshaw is one of those guys as well. Like, you know, just came and made small talk and the small talk was easy and and flowing and uh, just had an instant rapport with him. And, and he seemed like a really great guy.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I I'll i put it this way. He uh, he is the kind of person that when when you tell him, come on the show, let's just talk about man thing for an hour. He is. He just lights up. <laughs> um, he, he is not one of those pros who has let his fandom subside. He's uh, he's a fan for life. So here's Nick Bradshaw giving uh, true proper due, uh, though he's, he's humble about it. He's got that Canadian, you know, humbleness to him. Uh, he, he really uh, he really gives uh, gives due to his hero and uh, and one of ours, Art Adams. It's kind of funny (laughs) because I was talking to
4: Bob Layton about this. We both used comic books as uh, our way to actually teach ourselves to read. And for me, it was Archie Comics. Um, I inherited a huge box of those uh, old digests and the old single issues. So it was always something that I was sort of into. But then uh, when I went into the shop to pick up some Archies one day, the owner says, listen, I got a huge box of these superhero books. Do you want them to try? And I was about maybe ten, and uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen a trade paperback. And they had one; it was um, the Asgardian Wars that had the Paul Smith stuff in the front, and then the Arthur Adams stuff in the back. After that, I was hooked. As soon as I saw that, it was just like, wow, you could do a whole different thing with these these comics, you know. So, for me, uh, that's when I, my love affair with Arthur Adams' work began as well. Like, I'm a huge fan of Arthur's. I don't even try to hide that when people ask. So, um, yeah, that was probably the one book. I still own that book at home. That's uh, probably one of the first ones that really changed the way that I see the the medium. Have you been a guest yeah. at a at a show that art's been at? Oh yeah, actually I got to Step meet him. Big wow. <laughs> strays you away from your artist alley table. <laughs> I'm gonna go uh, well, Adams's table. Well, I talked to his wife uh, Joyce Chandler because I buy his artwork, you know. Which don't get into ever doing that because you'll go broke like. Yeah, it's hot, a bad idea. Bad guys. habit. Any art collecting. But come to my table. You can buy my pieces and George's. Yeah, <laughs> But go Art Adams' table. Go to Nick Bradshaw's table. Yeah, you got to take, like, a small house loan to get some of the Arthur's table. <laughs> or, you, or you get guys like Walt Simonson who don't sell their stuff. And no. you just, you know, you hope against hope. Someday, someday <laughs> I'm going to get a Walt Simonson page. Never going to happen. Actually, he's, he's leaving it all for his family, so it'll probably be them we'll have to bug someday. But. <laughs> anyway, um, no, but I got to meet Arthur last year for the first time at Big Wow, which is in San Jose. His wife, Joyce, who I've uh, purchased artwork off of, comes to my table, and she's like, come over, i got some stuff at Arthur's table to show you. And before my wife could even grab my wallet, I was off like a shot. And uh, I introduced himself to him, and my voice cracked. I'm like, hey, Arthur, you know. <laughs> so nice, nice to meet you. I'm 30, 35 years old at the time. So, uh, anyway, I got to uh, be introduced to him. And then he hauls out this piece that's almost the size of this table, and it was this original sin uh, multi-cover thing that he did. Oh, my God. And it wasn't completely finished, but I was just kind of sitting there looking at it. And then within two minutes, I look up and I realize there's like a crowd of 40 people with their cameras out, drooling over and snapping photos. It was just
0: ridiculous. So that was my introduction to Arthur for the first time. John, uh, today as we record this, the sixth issue of Walt Simonson's IDW series, Ragnarok, is on the stands. And uh, this is uh, this is a, another kind of a Thor story from the guy so heavily,
1: heavily associated with Thor. Are you saying it's Thorda, a Norse story? It's
0: Thorda, a Norse story. <laughs> okay. Um, Walt, I, I apologize. Walt very generously <laughs> signed a number of first printing first issues of this series for us to give away. So... Uh, here's what we're gonna do just email us just Wait.
1: He signed them? Yeah, he signed they them. They have the Brontosaurus. They have the Simonson Bronosaurus. They have on. the
0: Simonson Brontosaurus signature. Oh my god. In silver ink. So just uh, just send us an email. Tell tell us what you love about the show. Tell us what you love to hear more about on the show. Uh tell us about your favorite episodes of the show. Tell us whatever you want using the feedback form esn.fm/contact pick giant size as your favorite show because of course you're listening to this Giant Size is your favorite show and uh make sure to include your mailing address and and we will uh, we will put some things in the mail. Um Great series, gorgeous art, great writing, both by Walt. Fantastic color work from Laura Martin, uh, which we've heard him talk about just a couple episodes back on the show. Uh, Again, not a guest on the show because uh, DW sponsored this show, but because he's Walt friggin' Simonson.
1: One of my favorite episodes.
0: I'm a big, big fan of that episode.
1: The color episode. (laughs) you, you You mentioned earlier if this is your first episode, this could be someone's first episode of Giant Size. If it is someone's first episode of Giant Size, go back a couple, listen to the color one. It's a really good one.
0: I am a big, big fan of it. Uh, A couple other things uh, that are out uh, as of now have been out. uh, Actually, as of this same Wednesday, uh, the first issue of the Drive miniseries, John, this is a continuation of the Drive movie narrative Mm -hmm. and uh, Star Trek Green Lantern. Why are more people not talking about this? Because it seems like that that cross-license uh, synergy thing that it seems like more people should be uh, shouting uh, shouting from the rooftops about.
1: I don't know if it's just because there's so many crossovers going on right now at the big two that it's kind of like slipped under the radar somehow, but this is a dream team pairing. Like Star Trek meets Green Lantern is like, I'm eight years old and I'm laying on my back trying to think up different comic book pairings that might work. This this is a series that should for all intents and purposes work. You have DC's cosmic superhero and you have Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future colliding. Um, it's, it, it, it's too, it's too cool of a concept to be ignored.
0: Could not agree more. Thanks again to IDW for their long, 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 I mean like pre ESN support of giant size and helping make it happen for so long. Um, John? Yes, sir. Up next, mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. the creative team behind Harley Quinn for DC. Oh. Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Chad Harden. And I talked to them a little bit about uh internet outrage culture. Not for the whole thing. Uh but you know the 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 impetus behind the fun, super fan favorite extraordinary, like packed to the gills room uh, type of project that they have and that they have continued to keep going throughout the new 52. What is your read on on the whole Harley Quinn phenomenon?
1: It's really fascinating because it is one of the pieces of comic fandom that has completely <laughs> passed me by. I um, I got to say, I don't get it um i've read good harley stories but uh, to me her as a as a character removed from even the joker i just i i i you know it's cool i'm glad that dc has found another uh female character to to blow up and obviously like you know suicide squad a lot of the marketing already uh this you know the stuff that they've shown and things like that are are very harley centric and for good reason. There's a whole generation that loves the holy hell out of that character.
0: Now, something that has come up, you know, call it, you know, rumor mill reporting or, or whatever, uh, but it's certainly in effect is is this whole bat phenomenon. phenomenon. Mm. Um, I, I think I think the verb bat is a synonym for making things interesting to an audience in a way that that they weren't uh, previously or that maybe had not quite caught on with people so uh i guess i guess it, it's apparently a derogatory term to make something fun and interesting and easy for new readers to get into and become big fans of
1: you know we saw connor and paul Miotti do some of this in dcu with the new starfire uh which i which I thought was a fun book, it was a slight book, but it was supposed to be slight. you know it wasn't supposed to be something that gripped me and shook me by my shirt and made me cry as I turned the last page. It was supposed to be a lark, and it was a lark, like mission accomplished. I thought a lot of the d c u stuff was that way, where it felt like they hit their target, and even if the target wasn't me, I still felt like okay, I can see an audience for this this is this is good comics just flat out. It's comics that I'm, you know, they don't embarrass me to read, to read them. And even if they're not for me, I can acknowledge that they're still well-made pieces of comic book work. And I feel like the DCU line, especially a lot of the, the number ones, um, the new stuff they were trying, I really feel like has been pretty rock solid. And I, you know, it's kind of funny. I feel like batgirling is almost even the wrong word. It should be like imaging. Do you know what I mean? Because I feel sort of like... You know, a lot of times we see the big two kind of side eye each other and follow each other's lead. And we've kind of talked about it on the show before when Batgirl came out, but we've seen it much happen across the line in a much wider way with books like Dr. Fate, uh, Constantine, um, Prez. And what it is, is it's not just Marvel looking at DC or DC looking at Marvel. It's Marvel looking at Image and DC looking at Image and two the big two trying to skate towards the puck in regards to where comics are going and what the future of comics is. And thanks to the web, you know, and we've talked about this, gosh, like the very, very early episodes of the show of Giant Size. I, I don't even think it was ESN episodes. I think it was back on the old network and talk about like how one of the really Subtle impacts of web comics is that people were exposed to dramatic storytelling in a variety of art styles. And it's really blown the doors open for a lot of artists who who would not have found themselves on a mainstream superhero book even 10, 15 years ago. Um, and, and I think that's fantastic. It's great that I can look at. DC's line and the books all look different, uh, and they they all have their own distinct flavor. I think it's I think it's terrific.
0: I could not possibly agree more. Um, one one of the things that has bothered me the most about superhero comics is that a criticism that I've leveled on on the Green Lantern books, you know, having the Lucky Charms rainbow of you know different uh, different colored marshmallow Lantern core, in some ways as a story. Technique totally worked. At a certain point, when they felt that it was uh, that it, w- it they were running out of gas, they kind of ran it all the way out of gas. And at this point, at least, it seems like they've decided to kind of uh, not not try to get you to buy six different Lantern Corps books a month, which I think is entirely reasonable and much more sympathetic to fans who only have so much of a budget to spend on comics and are probably going to be more disposed to dropping six different lantern books than they are hang on to one of them because they feel like, well, the six of them are so interlocking, I'm going to get lost and I'm not going to feel like I'm reading the whole story. And I think the, the whole approach of DCU making it so that there there isn't uh, there isn't that kind of strict. Well, if you're reading Starfire, you really need to be reading Justice League Dark or whatever the equivalent is. I don't even know if there is an equivalent at this point. Teen
1: Titans, Teen would Titans, be the Starfire book.
0: Well, uh, no, I'm saying I'm saying completely on the other side of things because oh, they, okay. th- things that would be on opposite ends of a given comic uh, book universe would okay. be. Interconnected for the sake of interconnecting Them and yeah. creating a micro Crossover uh, that will make brains Explode mm-hmm. um,
1: Like uh, like when and I loved Red Lanterns but kind of when Supergirl was Doing its own thing and Red Lanterns was doing Its own thing with Supergirl Kind of that sort of idea yeah. they, they are Sort of like separate audiences But one's continuity there Was confusion I never knew why well Why isn't Supergirl Red Lantern in her own book And like that kind of thing yeah,
0: th- that's that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, and and that for me is actually functionally different than what they've done over the last uh, three, four issues or so of Superman and Action Comics and Superman Wonder Woman, where there has been a bit of an interlocking story that each of the different books is happening at a different point in that, and the, and I know this is something that annoyed the crap out of you, um, that they that they. Uh, they didn't explain any of it up front as to why his uh, his secret identity was known and that kind of thing. But I loved it. Uh, oh, my
1: deal was that I didn't know that I... My deal was that I didn't know... You thought you'd miss something. I thought I missed it, and I didn't know where it was. And that was the frustrating part, was me going like... It's not necessarily like... I could come in like partway into the story, but it was... I didn't realize that into the story was the beginning, and there was no... Warning: As far as no, no, this is the start. So I, that was the only bit of confusion I had. Was like at least tell you, me, you were hey, expecting, there wasn't anything before this.
0: You were expecting to be at a twelve-issue deficit, and in fact, they, 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 uh, they subverted your expectations by making it so that no, 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 no you, th- this is the starting point. Uh, your confusion was based on the patterns of mm-hmm. old.
1: You know, but buried in all this, all this good news of of DC just having higher quality books across the board. Is startling bad news, and that's well. The,
0: is, is this is this news or is this a rumor and conjecture at this point?
1: Well, the 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 reality is is the money loss, right? So that's a reality because that's reflected in the sales. Figure. DC
0: DC's down two million dollars, yeah. versus last year,
1: and that's a reality. That's that's not the rumor and conjecture. Um, that and that's that. But see. The, OK, so the rumor and conjecture comes up that they are going to retreat from this creative burst that they've had, um, that they're going to kind of go back to the old ways because that was what was working. That's the part that, to me, feels a little bit made up. Um, I would think that the the DC would be smart enough to at least look back on their past year and just be able to tell themselves it was They weren't doing it quick enough. And honestly, I mean, Convergence was a bust. Quality of individual books aside, the event itself was a bust. Um, It was confusing to new and long-term fans. Uh, It it had, uh, honestly, just from a graphic design standpoint, ugly covers, those covers with the the fade-out. They're unattractive covers on the shelf. They just are. When they're grouped together, it looks like a bunch of black mess. Um, and and Convergence was a bust. And I think instead of going, we've got to stop what we're currently doing, I think I think they need to keep doing what they're currently doing and then let those numbers bear out. That's the part that feels made up to me. There's also a little part of me that wonders as well if – and I don't know who has whose ear, but it would be interesting to know if DC gauged any of the response today from fans, if they kind of looked at social media and went, okay, the actual outcry and reaction is that we're doing the right thing. Instead of, instead of kind of putting that out there and gauging and seeing diehard DC fans go, yes, yes, we want it the old way. I didn't see a lot of that. I didn't see a lot of, no, no, go back to the first year of New 52. That's what we want our comics to feel like instead what i saw was a lot of people a lot of people not just myself going stay the course stay the course because they have to they have to build their reputation back up with lapsed fans and the way to do that is to continue to put out high quality imaginative books that look different from everything else that's on the stand but are in line with modern trends and i th- i think they've got to maintain that because it's going to take word of mouth it's going to take somebody telling somebody hey are you reading Prez? Because Prez is really flipping good. It's really insanely good. Yeah. And it's got they've got they've got to wait that stuff out. They can't they can't retreat into comics from 2012, 2011, you know, um, which was still kind of, I think, at that point, you know, coasting from the from the surge of the new 52. Uh You know, those numbers had already started to decline. That was the whole point of DCU, was to address the fact that the line overall was pretty weak. Uh, You know, they could maintain sales on Superman and Batman and anything with Justice League's name on it and everything else kind of trailed, Green Lantern as well, but everything else kind of trailed along. And now I'm looking at a, a place in my own life right now where, you know, I'm picking up a half dozen DC books for the first time. Some of them I'm reading digitally, some of them I'm reading in print. I'm reading uh you know, some of these just launched, so I'm very early into them, you know, but I am I did pick up the second Black Canary. I will pick up the second cyborg. I'm three issues into Lost Army. I'm reading Robin Son of Batman. I'm reading uh again Prez. I've been reading Catwoman since Genevieve Valentine uh Valentine took over. That's a great book. Um, so I've got more DC stuff on my plate right now. Honestly than Marvel books, and part of that again is Secret Wars. So a lot of the stuff I was reading got canceled: Ant Man, Magneto, etc. Um, so it's a little bit those, unfair. St-
0: those still, still occasionally uh, <laughs> publishing issues while the mega events going on.
1: Yeah. So, so, but the point is, like, I'm I'm picking up more DC books on the monthly right now than I am Marvel books, and. Even if the Marvel stuff was in full effect, they would. My split would probably be about fifty-fifty between the two, like discounting in all the indie stuff I pick up, which is actually my my buys are probably split into thirds in regards to uh, in regards to what companies I'm buying from. But I just i I hope that they don't get cold feet, and I hope these are people that have run corporations and <laughs> and have been part of this machine for a while, and I think. Fans are quick to say the sky is falling, but I would hope in reality that the thought is no, no, this is going to pay off. This is we are skating to the puck creatively, and this is going to pay off, and we are going to turn things around. And we really don't need to be thinking about the past year because if they're measuring the year as, uh, you know, summer to summer, basically from the start of summer 2014 to the start of 2015, which would be about. Uh, that would be roughly like the sales data they would have. If the $2 million loss happened there, I would say just wait it out, wait it out another year. If you have to change things, change things, but not so early into the, into this renewed life at DC and this renewed creativity at DC. Everything feels kind of charged in a way that it hasn't felt since 2010. And it would be a real shame to, to squelch that now.
0: Well, I, I agree very much. And the, the, amazing thing again is that i was barely reading any dc stuff uh i i have not been as true blue of a dc uh reader as you have for a, a long while i mean i was reading action comics from the moment that greg Pak uh picked it up mm-hmm. i was reading justice league 3000 with uh giffen and de mateus um I I don't I don't I mean I I don't know that I was reading much else other than Charles Soule's Red Lanterns. Um, you know
1: even the even the stuff that's like the quote unquote standard DC stuff the Superman books the Batman books. Heck, I'm reading Justice League. I, I I and it's even the same like it's still Jeff Johns, but to me it's night and day different from Justice League number one that came out in 2010 to this Justice League Dark Side War. I'm loving the hell out of Dark Side War. It's awesome. I'm having such a good time with it. Uh, and it feels very – it feels like something you would think of as more traditionally DC than, say, Dr. Fate. Um, it, it feels very rooted in stuff they were doing just a couple years ago. It's certainly in that realm and has that flavor. Uh, but it just – there's an energy to it. It it feels smarter, you know, it. it I, I think the
0: image comparison, you know, if there is anybody that I really wish uh, to see the big two imitating its creators that are doing stuff at image because they are taking chances and doing different things and trying to differentiate themselves from all of the other stuff, all the samey stuff in the marketplace. And I think that is very smart for these people with these multi-million, multi-billion dollar franchises to do on, on the DC side of things with DCU. I've been reading Prez. The Teenage President. How would you pitch Prez to a reader who has no idea what it is, doesn't read any DC books, hasn't read a DC book in years, hasn't read a DC book ever, whatever?
1: A Prez is a hilarious uh, modern political satire about a YouTube celebrity uh, who's also a teenager becoming president of the United States. Uh, The series has just started, issue three, Actually, hit stands today as we record. Issue three came out today, um, and it's it's good. Like it's 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 really good. I I had a big old stack of DC number ones: Martian Manhunter, uh, Constantine, the Hellblazer, Doctor Fate. Basically, everything. Um, you know, Bizarro number one was another one. I had a, a big old fat stack of DC number ones, and I was reading and reading and reading. And some stuff again I liked more than others nothing i hated there was nothing in there that i hated uh but i loved prez like that was the one where i was like this this book here this book's good it doesn't take place in the dc universe i don't think maybe it takes place on like an alternate dcu another earth i don't know um because they're
0: they're embracing the multiverse again
1: yeah, but if you like indie books and the and the big two, you kind of stay away from just in general because you think their outputs boring. Uh, Prez is the kind of book that that might change your mind if you're reading stuff from IDW, if you're reading stuff from Boom, from Dynamite, Image, Oni. Uh, you, you Oni, you can't ignore. Uh, you can't ignore Prez. You got to give it a shot.
0: I am reading Superman and Action Comics both for the first time since the nineties. Um, loving what Gene Yang is doing in the main Superman book, uh, loving, continuing to love what, what Pac and Cooter are doing in action comics. Um, I've been, I've been enjoying, I, I, I've been enjoying this Superman story to the point that I have been haranguing people on Twitter. Where, where are these t-shirts? Where is this Superman logo t-shirt? Why isn't DC already making this? Uh, don't they have a gigantic merchandise machine? Um I'm I'm a big big fan of of the way that they're playing with taking away Superman's secret identity where yeah it, okay it's a gimmick any anything that is a hook is a gimmick but it's something that that for me has not been done with Superman it is very relevant there's a lot of you know Ferguson and you know Black Lives Matter type uh type stuff that has has definitely had an impact on the direction of, of parts of this. Um, but it is not so politicized that if you fall a bit more on the right hand side of the political spectrum, you can, you can just find yourself hating it. It is, uh, it is remarkably equal opportunity enjoyment, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on. It is about the, to me, the, the neutral type of social justice, the just plain, decent people, social justice. Um, so, you know, some people who uh, who run the other direction at the mention of that term, they don't listen to the show already. So, I'm not worried about losing them. Um so, let's let's hear a bit from from the the Harley Quinn team. Uh I I am with you. I don't know how long I'm going to stick with the DC books if they're going to suddenly course correct away from what I think is a very positive direction, which is following the lead of letting Ingenuitive creatives do what they do best. And again, we're not saying that that's definitely what they're doing, but that's that's what the rumor mill seems to point to and the type of thing that major corporations do when suddenly there is a giant loss um, projected and they need to look like they're doing right by their stockholders. Um, Mm -hmm. So here is to creative ingenuity and uh, maverick spirit and uh, here is to Harley Quinn.
7: When we first got the gig for Harley, um, Amanda started drawing. You know, she wanted to redesign it like she does everything she touches. And um, and she started putting padding because she said it made sense. And eventually it started looking like a roller derby uh, outfit. And we decided, well, why not? Let's put that I mean, in the book.
8: Just natural for Harley to join a roller derby team, right? <laughs> yep.
7: And then, we, and then we went to, uh, we live in Florida. We went to a, a local roller derby match to kind of get some insight and find out the rules and ask the people rules and regulations and in the first issue we probably spend too much time going over the rules and regulations but we figured everybody who never uh, played it or never watched it might learn something um, but at the end of the day you just have to knock the other person out of the way and that's kind of fun too you know so so it made sense and um, and since then a lot of shows we go to we get invited and if we're in towns to the roller derby matches and the, the gals come up and say you got to come see us you know we're great and we destroy people, and we're fun, and we drink hard and party hard. And you do that, you go out afterwards, you kind of celebrate, have a couple of drinks, late night hamburger and fries, that kind of thing. French right? fries. French fries. Yes. Um, so that's what we have Harley doing, actually, after she has a bout, she goes out. Although she's in Skate Club right now, which I'm not really supposed to talk about, but <laughs> since we're in a
0: special protected room. That was Jimmy Palmiotti, and now Amanda Connor and Chad Harden on characters that they would like a crack at redesigning.
8: I think my fantasy uh, uh, characters are, you know, one of them is, is uh, Catwoman, love to do Catwoman one day. Um, another one, I Marvel related, is uh, Tigra or She-Hulk. Those are my other... <laughs>
7: would, if, you did, if you did Tigra, would she have a litter box yes. in her house? She yes, would. She okay. Would. I just know my wife. I just know her. <laughs> How about you, Chad?
9: You know, I, I grew up on New Mutants, and Marvel's really just sort of taking mutants and just shoving them to the side, and I'm like, okay, before you get rid of them, let me play with them just a little yeah. bit, and yeah. I would love to do, like, my own New Mutants. Like New New,
7: mutant? new, yeah. new Mutants? Yeah. 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 yeah, two news. Yeah, two-two. Yeah.
0: <laughs> new New. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> new New Mutants. Now the whole team chiming in on characters and comics reading experiences that hooked them early on as fans themselves.
7: little little Annie Fanny in the back of Playboy when I was a kid. Hey, all right, and a couple of older guys understand that. Um, Because, you know, I had older brothers, two older brothers, and they had Playboys hidden around the house, which very well, obviously. obviously. (laughs) (laughs) My mom knew where they were. They were under the hamper, they were, whatever the hell they were. Um, But I got to tell you, the first comics I read were, you know, always the older brothers had them, and they were Archies, like Archie and Richie Rich, and I. Not coming from a family with much money, I used to read Richie Rich and go, "Wow, oh, I imagine what that's like," you know, all that money. Um, but they were they were kind of funny comics, and then I discovered actually Fantastic Four was the first one that hit me, and I was like, "This is great!" And I started hunting them down. But it's not like now, like you know, there was one comic store. There was one comic store near my house in Brooklyn, and Paul Levitts worked there. He was actually, young Paul Levitz was the guy that climbed on the ladder and got, I would say, can I get Fantastic Four, number 24? And, he, and I said, can in better condition? And he'd, you know, grunt, go up the ladder, pull the box out. Um, so it wasn't like now where you could just go, and, and the, the comic conventions they used to go to were in the basements of hotels in New York and although the, to be abstract there used to be guys with original art like stacks of fantastic four pages by Kirby for 10 bucks each oh! when I was a kid yeah but 10 bucks when i was a kid was like a, a grand or two grand you know like it was i would shovel snow to make money and 10 dollars was something you did all day and you got that 10 bucks so i would of course buy something stupid instead of buying the original art like an idiot um, but but i guess you guys answer the comic that
8: uh... oh i i actually when um when i lost my first tooth my um the tooth you were paid fairy in comic books? i yeah my, <laughs> <laughs> my the tooth fairy got brought me a nickel and a mad magazine and i don't remember what happened to the nickel but that mad magazine i just like carried with me for an entire i don't know two months and just read it and reread it and um there was a time where I, you know, of course I read Archie's and, you know, all kinds of, mostly Archie's when I was really young. Um, and then I sort of got out of comics for a while, and then I discovered Wonder Woman. Got really into Wonder Woman. Linda and Carter then Wonder Woman? What's that?
9: Linda Carter Wonder Woman?
8: Oh, God, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I. In fact, I was so into Wonder Woman, my, my brother had this little gun that shot plastic pellets, and my parents, for some reason, had um, this silver coated cardboard and I fashioned some bracelets and I had my brother shoot at me with a little pellet gun and about 20% of the time I would get it with the bracelets but most of it was just like ow, 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 ow. Yeah. Um, and then I discovered Red Sonia, and then sort of let comics go again and then one of my friends from high school who I still keep in touch with brought John Byrne and Chris Claremont's X Men into class. And then I was hooked again. Mm -hmm. And I just, I keep getting rehooked. And then, um, oh yeah, and then in college I read Frank Miller's Daredevils. And that got me hooked, like rehooked. I just keep getting rehooked on comics.
7: It's a good, like, teaching class. Rehooked on comics. (laughs) Rehooked on comics. (laughs) The kind of addiction that helps. Uh, Yeah, I, I, uh,
9: my my dad is uh, John Wayne's long lost son, Uh, wears cowboy boots. football captain, athlete, and then he had me, this giant nerd, and uh, and his idea, my dad's idea of fun was every weekend we would travel up to Panguage Lake, Utah, which is just this tiny little place in the middle of nowhere in Utah, way up on a mountain, and this is before tablets and phones and, and, and whatnot, and uh, back, in the day. back in the day, so, but when we would stop to get gas, they would have the comic rack, Okay. And I would just, you know, out of sheer desperation, because there's nothing to do for the four-hour car ride up to Penguins Lake every weekend, I would get comics and, and read comics and um, Mad Magazine and whatnot. And, uh, but it, and it, it used to be I was just bored, but there was X-Men Annual 10 by Arthur Adams. Mm-hmm. That I picked that up, and like like comics before were they were like fun they were neat, but when I saw like Arthur Adams drawing, I was like, "Okay, this is what I want to do like this guy is, like really, really good and then and then and then I started following artists, and so I went and got long shot and and all this but i I too have a tooth story involving comics, but i I had to have like all my teeth pulled when I was a kid Aww. in the back. And, um, Did
7: misbehave?
9: no, I just <laughs> have a wonderful mouth. And, uh, um, that's what you're gonna, and that's so I, gonna I, I had surgery I and, and once mouth. again, I was going to be sick. So oh, poor kid. I was going to, you know, go in the comic book store. Well, so they pulled all my wisdom teeth and my mouth is just packed with gauze. And, uh, they pulled my wisdom teeth, like two, two middle teeth. So all my teeth could fit in my mouth. And I go into this comic store, and I, my mouth is packed with gauze. I'm like, I'm like Brando in Godfather. You know? And I go in, and, and, and once again, all the comics were on these racks. And I tilted my head down to look at the racks, and blood just pours out of my oh mouth, onto God. the floor. I've never seen anybody in a comic store freak out like that, that kid behind the counter freaked out that day. But anyway.
0: You literally bleed comics. Yeah, I, I just bled all over, the,
9: all over the comic book store. So, anyway.
0: And on that note, we actually are closing out the first part of our unexpectedly two-part Dallas Fan Expo special for 2015. This week's episode of the show was sponsored by IDW Publishing. You can pre-order the deluxe hardcover edition of Walt Simonson's Ragnarok from IDW from your local comic shop right now. And pick up a bunch of those cool books they're putting out, all-ages stuff, licensed stuff, original creator-owned stuff, like you heard about on the last episode. This episode is also brought to you by SaneBox. When you feel like your inbox really is devouring you, like a horde of zombies, like in, say, The Walking Dead comic, or any of a number of other comics that predicate themselves on zombie metaphors, SaneBox is there to save you. SaneBox is the headshot that is going to keep that zombie from devouring you. I was not previously a user of SaneBox before I reached out to them regarding sponsoring our shows. But here's the thing. My friend Brett Terpster, who hosts Systematic and Overtired right here on the network, he was right. Because it has radically, radically improved my ability to get stuff done. It intelligently goes through and filters my email and figures out stuff that I really just do not need to look at now based on things that I've replied to, how quickly after receiving something I open things. That They do all that magic. You don't actually have to think about that. SaneBox just does it for you. There are also advanced features like one-click unsubscribes from lists that you never signed up for. It really has fundamentally changed and transformed my email usability in just the few weeks that I've been using it, and I can't recommend it highly enough. It doesn't cost you anything to try it out. Try it out for two weeks. There's nothing super complex that you need to do, and it's super easy to quit, cancel, shut it off, whatever you want to do. There's a two-week free trial, no credit card required. Go to samebox.com. Slash ESN to do the two week trial. And when you do end up signing up, having used that link, you're going to save $25 off of your new subscription. Thanks to Sanebox for supporting Giant Size and all of the shows on ESN. The second part of this special, we're going to do our best to get that out late this week. Thanks so much again to IDW and Sanebox, and thanks to you, our listeners for making sure that comics really can be for everybody. Thanks again to my co-host, John Golson. You can follow him on Twitter at Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N. Follow me on Twitter at Moiseschu, M-O-I-S-E-S-C-H-I-U. The network at ESNFM. And of course, you can find show notes for this episode by going to ESN.FM slash Giantsize slash 39. We'll be back very soon with the conclusion to this two-part Dallas Fan Expo special and much, much more in the world of comics. Thanks for listening.